Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. It was neat to see you play, and it's fun to talk to you all these years later because you played with a lot of joy and you played with passion. And I've seen Dan Dicko hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, you know, I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. I think there were a lot of kids who looked at Dan Dickow and said, Dan Dickow can play at this level, I can play at this level. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with SB Live Sports and the Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dan Dickow. Conversations in the world of sports, you know me well enough. If you're listening to this podcast, it's usually basketball-centric. Today's is going to be a fun one. It was a teammate of mine from my first college stop at the University of Washington. Someone who carved out a tremendous college and pro career. Uh, while he was one of the first Canadians to really make that trek into prominence in the world of basketball, Todd McCulloch. Todd, it's been too long since we've talked. How's life? It's good, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. It's always good to talk to you. And um, yeah, it seems like it's it was a long time ago that we were teammates at the University of Washington, and, and we uh, both went on to some pretty interesting basketball journeys after that. So let's uh, let's get to it. Absolutely. And actually, speaking of a couple of former UW teammates, Mike Johnson and Grant Leap, I'm sure we'll listen to this podcast at some point. Um, We have a text message thread with those two guys going. Uh, We may have to include you on it uh, to share some more of these uh, memories and the good experiences that we had. But you're someone who grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, and you were one of the first Canadian players that really kind of started the trend of having a lot of success at the college level. What was growing up in Canada like for you as far as learning the game, being taught the game, as well as like how you viewed the game as a youngster? Um, it was it was great. I loved growing up in Canada. A lot of great people. Uh, very cold in the winters. I, I joked that uh, it's so flat in Winnipeg you could watch your dog run away for three days. I stole that, but that, uh, that gives me an idea. It's just it's very desolate in the winters. It's very beautiful in the summers. So in the basketball, in, in, you know, choose a sophisticated game like basketball to be inside air conditioned gyms instead of being outside playing baseball. I did play hockey. Uh, it's, it's law in Canada. If you can play hockey, you have to play for as long as you can. Uh, and then I just, I was always an athlete. I loved sports. There's nothing I'd rather do than play soccer or basketball or hockey or volleyball or badminton or whatever I could do. Uh, and I, I loved being with my friends and a bunch of my friends were athletes as well. And then it became basketball season and that's just what we did. I wanted to be where they were and my height just kept on going. And I think the maybe hockey uh, helped me with my hands. And then in fourth grade, I was uh, part of a juggling club at school where our teacher taught anyone who was interested to juggle. And I think that really helped my hands. So basketball came easily being uh, tall, coordinated with good hands. And so I just kind of stuck stuck with it and just did it because it was fun. And I, I thought um, University of Winnipeg or University of Manitoba would be my two choices. And I just thought I'd just have to pick between these two schools uh, here at home. Didn't know of anyone that had gone to the U.S. I think I was the third person ever in the history of Manitoba to go 
uh, directly to D1. So there wasn't some kind of pipeline or something modeled. I just uh, I figured I would go to one of those two schools and played well enough to get the attention from North Dakota and North Dakota State just across the border. Regionally, they were able to either see me play or, or hear about me. Uh, and they started telling me about the SAT. So I started learning about what it might take to uh, to play at a United States school and ended up playing well in uh, kind of an AAU tournament in Phoenix, Arizona. And then all of a sudden, I think there were 60 D1 schools that were um, that were offering me a scholarship. So my world just opened up and I was overwhelmed and, you know, trying to talk to that many coaches once a week during the recording process. And I kind of just as a high school kid, just kind of still wanted to hang out with my friends and didn't want to be on the phone all week. So my parents really helped guide me through that process and uh, ultimately uh, chose University of Washington, which, you know, looking back at my career uh, was certainly a good decision. You and I got to be teammates. We got to go to the Sweet 16, uh, you know, made some lifelong friends, met my wife there, um, everything, everything. Um, so I, I look back at that as a very, very good decision. And, the, the, you know, the coaches that we had and the teammates and, and all of that. So uh, uh, Seattle was a great place to be. It still, still is. So there's two things that, I want to ask you about in, in that answer that you gave the, the first, before I forget about it is juggling. Share yes. a little bit more about that, Todd. Cause uh, I, I remember you telling me at some point as teammates that you could juggle and you, I'm sure you grabbed tennis balls at some point, but how do you truly get into juggling? Uh, Laidlaw high school uh, was well, not high school, Laidlaw junior high. My, um, my fourth grade teacher, teacher was Mr. Matus and he, he was a very accomplished juggler. And he just kind of told the class in the school, hey, anybody who wants to learn to juggle, I'm going to be teaching a juggling class after school. And it kind of just we kind of became the juggling school. I, I think a third of the school, a half the school, everybody that was interested in learn to juggle. There was, you know, charts on the wall. If you want to graduate from level one, do this trick for 30 seconds. Level two is this. And it kind of became this competition of who could be the best juggler. And then we had a school juggling competition where everybody performed. It was almost like a, a talent show, but it was all juggling. And it came down to a good friend, uh, Jeff Cron and I going at it. He was a better technical juggler. I think he could maybe juggle more objects or juggle uh, pins, juggling pins better than I could. I could do, I could do pins, uh, but my hands were big and I could juggle basketballs and he couldn't handle that. And so when the, my, the plan was when I finally bobbled it, I would go in and do a layup. And I think I actually missed the layup, but, uh, but I was, uh, I joked that I was a better performer than my friend and I got voted the juggling champion of the school. <laughs> and then I went to a joggling championship provincial wide where you had to run five laps of the gym while juggling. And uh, I won that and became the Manitoba joggling champion. So, uh, so I think that just helped with my concentration and hand eye and to be able to do that. And, and I think it really, you know, I've always, people have always complimented me on, on soft hands. And I think, I think it kind of goes back to, to that. And that, that started at, in fourth grade. That is an awesome story. And, and I will say this, yeah, we were teammates at the University of Washington for two seasons, and, and I played with a lot of other really good big men at Gonzaga in the NBA, but your hands, you could catch any ball, and I can see how that would come from juggling and have to kind of catch things, and uh, that, that's tremendous. The other question I have for you is, and I want to share with you my hockey experience. My daughters, I don't know if you know this, Todd, uh, they're ice skaters. Uh, my my. My 12-year-old is a very good ice skater. She's actually competed at the national level uh, in figure skating in the States. Um, but the last time I was on skates, John Stockton has a yearly Christmas party. It, it didn't happen this past year due to, due to COVID, but a little over a year ago, um, he has a skating party where he rents out an ice skating facility here in Spokane. People play hockey, they ice skate, and this, that, and the other. 
The last time I was on skates, I played hockey and I broke my wrist. Oh man. How did you get it? I know hockey is like the national pastime in Canada. When's the last time you were on the ice and did you have an injury that made you just say, I'm done? Uh, I, I sort of learned from your story without knowing it. I saw the writing on the wall. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story and then I'll, I'll backtrack. Uh, so it was probably a couple years ago. Um, I, I do have some skates and I'll tell that story as well. And we went to kind of a weekend getaway and in the winter they, they freeze the lake and they skate. And so my wife went out and my daughter went out and, and I went out with my son and I got about five feet in and I was like, I'm going to fall and break my wrist and it's not going to be worth it. So I, sh- I just shuffled my, you know, my, my big butt off the ice and I sat down, I took off my skates and, you know, I've, I've you know, gained a lot of weight since uh, playing and, and all of that weight on these two little metal things just uh, was not working. And so I, you know, I, I was a good hockey player growing up. So it was, it, it was a hit to my, to my pride to be out there and just be wobbling. Um, but I just, I didn't want to fall and break my wrist. And I knew that was real, it's a long way for me to fall. I might've broken the ice. Um, <laughs> when I was younger, I, I played at a high level and, uh, Winnipeg and Manitoba are very good, uh, hockey hotbeds. We have lots of players in the uh, NHL and there's a, a proud history. And I played on the top team, uh, when I was 11 years old, we won the uh, city provincial, uh, the city championships. And then we won the provincial championship. So I was on the, um, the top team, top level. Um, and loved hockey. And then obviously, um, and then we were playing 80 games and 80 practices as an 11 and 12 year old. And I decided like, I love hockey and I love these guys, but I, I can't, I can't practice at 5am and 10 at night. And I, I want to hang out with my friends. So hockey is just too much of a commitment. So I quit. And then I get to the Sixers and, uh, and the, uh, the owner, Mr. Snyder found out, you know, who was, he, he birthed the Flyers into existence and he owned the Sixers and the Flyers and the Flyers were kind of his, his baby. I mean, there was a seventh team in the NHL and he just, he made them happen. So he found out that one of his basketball players uh, used to be a good hockey player. He said, Hey, you got, you, do you want to skate with my guys? Do you want to skate with, I'm like, are you kidding me? I would love that. So as a kid around Canada, you know, I think most kids want to be a professional athlete in Canada. You want to be a hockey player. So I said, that would be an absolute dream come true if I could skate with the Flyers. So so excited. I, I was like, there's a problem though. I have size 19 feet and I haven't skated since I was 15 or 13. Don't worry about that. And so he sent out an email around the world and an email came back from a Winnipeg skate shop that they said, we'll take a 15 skate and we got a European uh, ski boot stretching machine. We'll stretch the, the hell out of them and uh, we'll get them to you. So they, they got me the skates and gave them to me and said, okay, practice up. We got on this day, you're going to skate with the flyers. We're going to do some three man waves. You're going to take shots at the goalie. And it was like, I, I remember driving to practice, uh, to, to skate practice. And I, and in my head, I had this mantra, like, I'm driving to a dream right now. Like I'm driving to get on the ice, to get ready to skate with this NHL team. Uh, and I get out there and I, I, I can barely move and I'm an ankle bender. And I'm the, like, the, I'm the kid that I used to make fun of when I was younger. <laughs> and I'm like, how am I supposed to skate with the flyers when I can barely stand up? And it was just me and my wife and the, uh, the Zamboni driver. And he was like, Hey, those are nice skates. Brand new. I said, yeah, he goes, you ever have them sharpened? I said, no. He's like, come on, numb nuts. You know, we got to get those things sharpened. And uh, so apparently skates until they get sharpened are very, so he sharpened them up. And then I get on the ice. I'm like, okay, I'm getting my mojo back a little bit skating, took some shots. And then now it's time to skate with the flyers. And uh, we came home from an 0 and 4 road trip and coach was not too happy. So we had a four hour practice that was supposed to be two hours. So instead of uh, getting to skate with the flyers, we, uh, 
I, I missed it. And it was like, uh, it was a total bummer. And, and, you know, coach Brown didn't, uh, he didn't, you know, he had other things on his mind and, and later he'd read about it in USA today that, that I was going to skate with him. And he's like, Hey Todd, how was that? How was that skate with the flyers? And I, I said, coach, it didn't happen. Why not? And I said, well, there was a scheduling difficulty. I didn't want to make him feel bad. He had a job to do. And it was just, it was, it was unfortunate timing that the longest practice I've ever had in my life happened to be the one where I had a, a date to skate with the flyers. And so unfortunately we weren't able to reschedule and, and that dream went, went bye-bye. So that's my, uh, that's my skating story. Oh, that is, uh, I can only imagine how disappointing that would be for, for someone growing up in Canada, loving hockey. That would have been like me having to pass on, on a, on a tea time at Augusta national, I'm sure with a couple, uh, you know, great golfers. Yeah. We became teammates at the university of Washington. You became, uh, really one of the, the, the best players in UW history based off of helping turn that program around in the late 90s and uh, Sweet 16 in 98, an NCAA tournament appearance in 99. What are some of your best memories as a Husky? Uh, I think you, I think you um, mentioned them is, is the NCAA tournament. That was our whole goal. I came in in a, in a class in 1994. Uh, there were six of us. I think we were rated uh, 18th in the country in terms of recruiting class. So I think as a group, we felt like we could turn things around. And, and right from the beginning, Coach Bender said, our mission is NCAA tournament. Uh, Huskies had not been there since, I think, 86 with Detlef Schramm and Christian Belt. So we knew we had a clear mission. We, we were unsuccessful in the, in the first couple of years. I redshirted. And then by my junior year, um, making it to the NCAA tournament, you know, we had a good year that year. And we just the only thing we didn't have on our resume uh, was a win against a, a, a highly ranked team. And the second last game was against UCLA, who I believe were 12th or 14th. And it was sort of like if we win this game, that's the last thing we need to prove to the committee that we are worthy. Uh, and we were down one with 2.1 seconds left. And I got fouled and went to the line. And I felt a tremendous amount of pressure, not just to win that game. But I thought if I can hit these, we're going to the tournament. And I said a little prayer and both of them went in. We ended up going to the tournament. And then it was kind of like, you know, let's just have some fun. And uh, we burst a lot of brackets because no one had seen Washington in the tournament for a long time. So everybody went with Xavier and um, and we won that game. It was a close game. And I ran around like a crazy person, ran over to Bob Rondo at the table. He was excited calling the game. I couldn't believe we we're in the tournament. Now we've won. And now we sit back in the stands and watch uh, third ranked uh, South Carolina lose to uh, 14th ranked Richmond. And, and it was almost like, hey, guys, we're 11, 14, 11 supposed to win. And we I think it just helped us believe in ourselves even further. I played, I think I had 31 and 18 against uh, Richmond. I, we just had a lot of confidence. And then we had that crazy game against UConn that uh, that I'll never get out of my head. But just to be on that stage and to get the school back to NCAA prominence and to have the campus so excited, that week of practice was probably the most fun week of practice I've ever had in my life. Um, so I think that was, those are my fondest memories are, are going to the tournament and being a part of the best parts of college basketball. You mentioned that UCLA game and I obviously that was my freshman year, your junior year. That was the first time I think I was ever a part of a college game. And I had some of those games at Gonzaga where the crowd was just on pins and needles the whole game. There was a buzz in the crowd. There was excitement. People were there, you know, 45 minutes early for, before the game to watch teams warm up. And I remember the student section rushing the floor after the game, after you made those free throws. And it was, it was one of the most uh, exhilarating feelings I had had as an athlete up to that point. Do you remember the crowd rushing uh, the, the floor that night? 
Uh, it was t a total blur. So I, I don't, I have some photos. Uh, I don't have them on the wall. I don't know about you. I've got my stuff just like leaning up in a closet. I need to put it up. But I, I found a photographer that had taken a photo of me just releasing the ball and he's on the baseline balls in the air and you can see the score clock, you know, 2.1 seconds left Huskies down. So I, it's, it's, I think my memory goes to that photo and that's before the, uh, the court had been rushed. And so I don't remember that. I think it was just a total blur. I just remember they had a couple seconds in mount the ball. Unfortunately, their hail Mary half court shot didn't go. Um, but I do remember, you know, before that game and warm up thinking, you know, I, I know you you had the ball in your hands a lot. You wanted the big shot. You took the big shot. You responded very well in those late game situations. I have sometimes, and other times I haven't. And so I've you know I've battled confidence issues. Um, you know whether I belong coming from Canada in the NCAA. Do I belong in the court with Hakeem Olajuwon and Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan like this? You know, so I, I had to keep telling myself. You know, I, I belong here. I deserve to be here. Um, and I just remember specifically in warm up of that UCLA game saying to myself mentally in my head, if, if this game, this is going to be a close game when it comes down to do I want the ball in my hands? And, and most players would probably say, yes, of course I do. And I don't know if in my career, I always wanted the ball at the end of the game. But I remember specifically that game. I want it. I'm ready. I think I can help this team. And if it comes down, I want the ball in the last second. So I went in with a really positive mental attitude for that for that game. And it, it, I guess it manifested itself in that situation. I love it. I love it. I, I, I remember you were at the free throw line. I didn't realize kind of the steps to preparing yourself to make big plays that down the stretch of that game, uh, which all great athletes have to mentally get themselves ready to go and envision uh, making plays before it comes to fruition. Um, we won't touch on the UConn game because even to this day, that is one of my most frustrating games because all it took was and I'm not going to name names. It took a block out or two from a couple perimeter guys, and we would have won that game. But uh, that's for another day. Angie's list is now Angie, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you can see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Um, you go from now finishing your college career the next season um, to being kind of on the fringe of being drafted. You, you then have to earn your way um, with the Philadelphia 76ers after they draft you. And you did it, if I'm not mistaken, by playing really well for the Canadian national team against USA Basketball. Walk us through your entrance to the NBA out of UW. Uh, you know, I had a good career at uh, UW. I, I led the NCAA in uh, field goal percentage for three years in a row. And, and senior year, I had 11.9 rebounds, which was second in the NCAA. The best was 12.1. Uh, so, you know, I, like I said, I struggled with my confidence a little bit. But in my head, I thought, you know, I, I, I think I should be in the NBA. I'm, I'm the mo technically the most accurate shooter in college basketball for three years in a row. And statistically, I'm the second best rebounder. And so even though I wasn't sure I deserved to be in the NBA or that I was good enough to be in the first round, um, I was hoping that that, that uh, book of work over my four years, five years with the red shirt would be enough to get drafted. I wanted to be in the first round. I wanted that security of three years. Um, you know, there's, you know, just because you do well in college doesn't mean your game will translate. And I think there was a perception that maybe 
maybe my lack of athleticism wouldn't translate to the NBA game. And I was worried that that might be an issue. And I think it probably was for, for a time. Uh, so I slipped to the second round and that was devastating to me. I, I, I thought that uh, I had done enough to get drafted first round. I wanted to take a breath and relax and, and just kind of be secure in my, uh, in my profession. Uh, being a second round pick, you're not guaranteed anything. And, and I think that's how it should be uh, for me. I, I, I didn't, uh, you know, the easy road, is, it's, it was never a, an easy road. And so this made me come to work. It made me need to make the team. It, it, nothing was guaranteed. I had to go earn it. And I think it taught me some serious lessons. And so I don't know that the Sixers uh, plan to keep me. I, I think that they, uh, second round picks, you can let them go to Europe and develop and then keep the rights and maybe bring them back later. And, and it's my understanding that I think that was the plan. So when I asked permission to play for the Canadian national team and try and qualify for Sydney, I was granted permission. Uh, my confidence uh, needed to be rebuilt and playing with Steve Nash will do that for you. He will get you the ball in scoring positions. He'll make you feel like a good player and not just Nash, but all those guys on the national team, Jay Tran as a coach, incredible experience. Couldn't wait to play every summer. All of a sudden I snap out of my funk. I'm not a bad player. I'm one of 60 players that have been drafted. We're playing well in this tournament. A uh, very important game against Puerto Rico comes up. Winner goes to the Olympics. And I have the worst game of my life because I paralyzed myself by putting so much into the outcome and not focusing on the process. And I was 0 for 4 from the free throw line. I was 0 for 6 from the field. You know, for someone that's the most accurate player in, in college, I can't make a shot because I, because I want the outcome without focusing on the process. And I really felt like I was hurting my team. And fortunately, I didn't have to feel guilty that long because Steve Nash uh, just played out of his mind and led us to a victory. <clears throat> and now the pressure's off. We've made the Olympics and now we have a gold medal game against the U S where the outcome, uh, both of those teams are going to be going to Sydney. So mission accomplished. So I go out there, play footloose and fancy free, uh, cause our mission had been accomplished and I end up with 22 points and 16 rebounds against the dream team, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan, Alonzo Mourning, and all of a sudden coach Brown, the coach of the dream team, who drafted me the month previous decides that, you know, Todd is now good enough uh, to be on our roster. So I get the, the best case scenario for a second round draft pick, uh, two years minimum salary. And that's how my NBA journey uh, began. So it was, it was, um, I don't know, it was a pretty incredible time in my life to, to go through that summer. Yeah. I remember hearing you tell that story of how you, you, you played really well and kind of open the doors or not open them, burst through them to give yourself that opportunity. And uh, you did it by, continuing to work and be ready. Um, there's two players that I want to ask you about your experience playing with them. And you probably get asked about both of these guys a lot. The first would be Steve Nash. You mentioned him playing against him or with him, sorry, for the Canadian national team. Um, play, I played against him. I found him to be an unbelievably difficult cover. I wasn't a great defender to begin with, but his skills, his smarts, his, his ability to uh, put the team first and, and what the team needed to do to have success blew me away. I, my last NBA training camp was with the Suns, and so I got a chance to know him a little bit more. And he blew me away by his leadership ability and his ability to set the tone with his work ethic. What was your experience being around Steve Nash? Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, you think about how good of a basketball player he is, and that's, that's well known. Two-time NBA MVP. I mean, how much better can you be than being, uh, you know, getting the award for being the best player in the NBA? So we know his basketball greatness, but then, you know, I'm glad you've had a chance to get to know him because I think he's actually a better person and more fun to be around. And so he's just this, he's a, you, you can't put him in a basketball box because he's just, he just has this positive energy, so much fun to be around. And, and, and when it came down to, to business time, I mean, there was, there wasn't a, a, a 
competitor that had more fire and more desire to win. Um, you know, but we would, we'd have a ton of fun. I mean, we, we were training for the Olympics and coach Triano was an incredible coach and, um, and got the most out of his players. And so one day we come into practice and after warm up, he said, okay, Steve, you're the captain of the team. Uh, you've got three shots from half court. You can take them. You can delegate. If any of them goes in, you guys run practice. And Nash said, all right, coach, let me take the first one here, guys. And he just takes a running jump shot from half court. Swish comes in. He's like, shits and skins. We're playing football. Where's that? We're playing indoor soccer. So all these lumbering giants like me who hadn't played soccer since I was a kid, getting ready for the Olympics are kicking shins with everybody. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to get hurt for the Olympics, but we turned the practice into soccer. We got our cardio and we had a ton of fun. And, you know, for the coach to give, you know, a team that choice and that opportunity and for Nash to just take it by the horns and say, you know what, we need to break up with the monotony a little bit. Let's have some fun. And, you know, we'd play in Puerto Rico and, and we'd win a game and it was all business and, and we took care of our opponent. We met in the center circle to, to wave to the crowd and thank them for their support. And then, you know, the hotel was, was on the water in, in Puerto Rico. And he's like, all right, guys, great job today. When we get back to the hotel, we're going to, we're going to play 500. I'm going to kick the soccer ball into the ocean and then we'll take turns. Okay, let's go. And it was like, man, this guy is awesome. Like he's amazing on the court and he's such a fun guy to be around. And he just had this, this belief. And so he was always trying to, you know, take guys aside and help them. And he led by example. He just had an incredible work. I mean, he was so uh, convincing. He, we, we were running this play where, you know, he's going to set a screen for me under the basket and I'm going to come around to this side and get it. That was a normal play. And, and basically he's like, all right, I'm going to set the screen, but then I'm going to turn around and screen him again. And you're going to come back and get the ball. But he was so convincing to me and the defense in his first fake out screen that I thought he'd called an audible and change the play. I was like, Oh, he has, he wants, he's just reading it. He's making a read. Now I need to continue. And when I did the wrong play and didn't follow through with step two, he got super mad at me. And I, and I was like, He's, he was just a step ahead of me, a step ahead of our opponents, and I needed to follow through the play. But I was like, oh, Steve is he's, – he's calling an audible. But he if I had run it effectively, I would have been so open. And instead, I messed the whole thing up. So from then on, I took him literally. It's like I'm going to run this play uh, all the way through because I can't, I can't bail out. I mean, if he wanted to change it, he could. And I just uh, – I kind of had blinders on. So we just had that kind of that kind of leadership. And every – you know, and I – Sometimes I think he would get frustrated. I wasn't the best screener. I think I was concerned. I was always in foul trouble. So I, I wasn't going to pick up uh, moving screens. That didn't mean that I couldn't lay a body on people. And sometimes, you know, Steve would, uh, his, his man wouldn't get bumped up very well. He came up to me. He's like, Todd, set a screen, please. And he just, he wanted to win so bad. And, I'm, and I did not want to let him down. I think I did a better job after that of trying to get him open, get him open. But he just, he was uh, such a, such an amazing leader. Yeah, I'm I'm pulling for him with the Brooklyn Nets because with three superstars who need the ball in the hand in their hands, that's going to be an interesting uh, dynamic to work through as a first year coach. The second guy that I have to ask about, and I know you probably get asked about him more than anybody else that you played played with, um, Allen Iverson. So I played against him. He was just like Steve Nash, an ultimate competitor, unbelievably skilled as far as, you know, his handle, his ability to get in the paint. What was he like as a teammate? He was hilarious. He was larger than life. He was somebody that you wanted to, uh, you wanted to be around because he was so darn funny. And so I had a, you know, this will age me, but I had a disc man and I had a nice set of earphones and I never wanted to use them because I didn't want to miss the, the Iverson show, you know, just cracking jokes and, and, and joking around. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, 
he'd, he'd always be singing a song or he was a, a very talented artist caricature so he might be drawing somebody on the team you know as a, as a cartoonist and he'd pass it around and it was funny unless it was you and i was like oh that's those are not my best features and uh <laughs> he, was a, he was an absolute riot and i never wanted to miss a, a minute of uh you know he just had such a such a positive positive energy and you know i'm i'm nervous about you know being on the team and making the team and i'm trying to do everything right and and you know he was not worried about not being there or them cutting him and so i think in in warm up he just came and you know jumped on my back and it, impromptu piggyback ride and it kind of made me realize that you know what i don't have to be so uptight about this you know this is basketball this is a game and he always had that that playful spirit of you know we're just going to the, we're just doing what we love and uh and he just he used to just talk about you know being in the foxhole. He just wanted his guys with him. He's like, we're gonna I'm gonna lead you into battle, and I just want this guy on my right, and I want this guy on my left. We're gonna go in there together, united. So he led in that way, and he led by example. And if you just tried to give half the effort that he did, we were gonna we were gonna come out all right. We knew that he if he had his ball at the end of the game, he was gonna he was gonna make something happen. And um, so we always felt like we we had a chance. We weren't blowing people out, but we were winning by three, four, five points. Um, because he would, you know, make big free throws and uh, he would make things happen. So he was just, he was so electric. And I think one play in Toronto, he was, he was in a race for a scoring champion. Every point counted. And somehow he and I end up on the break, just the two of us. And he dishes it to me for the assist. And I get a dunk in Toronto. And I'm thinking, how the heck am I out on a break with Allen Iverson? And there's nobody in front of us. And so it's just, uh, you know, I'll watch highlights and think, how was I ever on the court with Allen Iverson? How could I, you know, I couldn't keep up with them, but how could I even be on the court with them? And it's a, it's a total paradox. So I just, I was so lucky to play with Nash and Iverson and uh, so many other great players, but those two definitely uh, stand out. We've got a few more minutes before uh, we both have to jump off, and, but I have to ask you about your, I don't want to call it a newfound passion, but I want to call it your post-playing career passion. And that's something that, uh, I can see behind you on this Zoom call. You actually have taught me quite a bit about this passion, and it's pinball. Can you break it down as far as how you got into pinball? You know, was it as a kid, and then now what you're doing with with pinball? Because I'm fascinated. Yeah, it's it's in my blood, and there's uh, I. I joke, you know, a lot of my friends now are pinball friends and I joke about uh, an STPD, a socially transmitted pinball disease. And I've been, <laughs> in, my goal is it's, you know, I try to make people stupid, socially transmitted, uncurable. I know that's not a word, a pinball infectious disease. And I'm just trying to spread it because I love the game. I want to share with people. It only takes, I don't know what percentage of people it takes in, but when it takes it, it then you just buy machines until you run out of money or you run out of room. And the more people I can infect, um, I think it just it brings a lot of happiness to me, uh, brings a lot of happiness to my to my friends. And I, I kind of look at it as a campfire, something that draws us all in to be together. It's a social game. Nobody's on their headset. Nobody's on their phone. It demands immediacy. You know, if you're playing a video game, you can pause it. You can be distracted. You can do these things and pinball. There's something innate about that ball is above those flippers. I don't want it to drain. It's going to take everything I have. Um, and I think it's an escape for a couple minutes and it take it really takes your mind. It hits you uh, three of your five senses, right? You've got all the artwork that's beautiful. You've got all the sounds that hit you in auditory. And then you have the physical touch. You know, the flippers are like an extension figure. So we're missing we're missing taste, but you can, you know, taste the victory, uh, uh, you know, the bitterness of defeat. And then there's uh, and then, you know, what else are we missing? Or um, there's another sense in there. Anyway, it hits you on a lot of senses that other games don't. And um, 
I just, uh, I can't, I can't get enough of it. So I started as a kid at the roller skating rink. I, I was in a bowling league at my, my church group. I think there were three kids in the church group. And after uh, Bible study church, we would go to the bowling alley and play. And I would throw the bowl, the, you know, in Canadian bowling, I think we got three throws and I would chuck them down the lane, not caring if they hit a pin. And then I would run to the arcade and play a game of pinball. And inevitably with only three kids, it would be my turn again. And, and they were like, where is Todd? It's his turn again. And oh, big surprise, he's playing pinball. So that's one of my earliest memories. And that really hasn't changed. Uh, love Slurpees, 7-Eleven, play pinball. And um, I can't get it out of my out of my blood. And I don't really want to because it's, it brings me a lot of joy. Um, and it just forms a community. And then it's almost like, hey, Dan, if, you, if you're going to come over and hang out and you're like, hey, I got this buddy, can he come too? And I said, of course, if you vouch for this guy, I'm sure I'm going to love this person. Come on over. And to me, somehow, pinball is that sort of third person. If you're into this and I'm into this, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt because you have the same shared passion. We probably have a lot in common, and we're probably going to have a lot of fun. And 99% and of the time, that works out. So it uh, seems to attract people that are into leisure, you know, billiard halls and arcades and hanging out. And uh, those are the kind of people I like to be around and still compete and still, it still keep score. So there's a competition aspect but it's way more laid back than say hoops. So how many pinball machines do you have? 50. I don't, I don't know. I've lost track. Uh, somewhere more, you know, the game, a game, the game of the day for the month or two months, something like that. So I, I don't know. They, it's a, it's a, it's a passion. I you know, addiction is a strong word and has a negative connotation. So let's, let's go with passion for it. All right. I love it. Well, I do have one pinball machine, and it's something that uh, you came to my house years ago when I lived in Vancouver, Washington, uh, and showed me the ins and outs of the Lords of the Lord of the Rings uh, pinball machine game. I was blown away. Like you were telling me how to score points, how to extend your game, how to get multi balls, all these different things. What is the longest? pinball game that you have ever played uh it was probably a game uh it might have been lord of the rings or it might have been uh, medieval madness i think on the clock probably close to an close to an hour somewhere in that 45 minutes to an hour range and that's you know lord of the rings can be a long playing game so you got your three balls you know pinballs synonymous with three balls but then you can earn extra balls and you might you know you might be able to earn three so your game might end up being six balls uh you know times that by about 10 minutes a ball on, on a good ball so you could be playing up to an hour i know I know people uh, who've played for hours uh, at a time. They're world champions and they have so much control and everyone thinks this is a, a game of chance and it really is a game of skill. And a friend of mine, Bowen Cairns, is a five-time world champion mathematician. He's been on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He put it mathematically and he's, he writes math textbooks for a living. So he knows the stuff. He puts it at 80% skill, 20% luck. And uh, you can really sort of control your fate and you can minimize your risk and your chance of draining. Um, and so it's a game that you can get better at and you can control and you don't put yourself in perilous situations. So that thing you were saying about the depth of the games and the strategy, that's what surprises people. Everyone knows pinball. They know it's fun. They know you keep the ball out of the drain, but there's so much more to it and opening people's eyes to it. It's almost like a different language or a, a map, a legend. When I have people over, I, I, I dissect it to them. And, and when you said blown away, that's the word that I hear a lot here. And I, one of my friends was just he did the motions. He's like, I had no idea that there was so many sub levels to this. And I guess I love breaking that down and, and teaching them a little bit about it because I think that's what's what keeps me coming back. And then they find out about it. And yeah, it's uh, it's like opening their eyes. It's, it's pretty cool. Well, Todd, I appreciate the time. It's been great to reconnect. Um, I, I can't wait till we 
we have a chance to play pinball side to side uh, again at some point. I know I will probably have a fraction of your points and I'll last uh, a fraction of the amount of time that you last, but thanks for joining. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. We'll, we'll have a good time for sure. So uh, when I do these podcasts, I always tell the podcast, come on over and you're always welcome over here. So let's, uh, let's get our vaccines and let's get it done. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.